Lord, bless it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got the first one, yes. So we're continuing the series on roadblocks, and this morning we're going to be looking at blindness as a roadblock. Now, the sort of blindness I'm going to be talking about is the sort where you can see there's a problem, but you can't see what the problem is. And uh, husbands, you might identify with this, you know. <laughs> you can see that somebody is upset with you. But you don't know what it is that you're doing wrong. You feel blind and they're not helping because if you say to them, what's the problem? They say, if you loved me, you would know what the problem is. Well, it's, um, let me see, where's this little clicky thing? Oops, yes, that's right, there we are. It's, it is hard to deal with a problem that you can't see, and David expressed it this way in um, Psalm 19:12. but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults, or your scripture version might have, forgive my secret faults, and that's not things that you're keeping secret from other people. That's things in you that are a secret from you. You just don't know what they are. And uh, just by way of commentary, David didn't write that prayer to one of his wives. He actually wrote it to God. But, gentlemen, that might be a very handy scripture for you to bring out at the appropriate time. It might be a heart softener in the situation. So... <clears throat> Blindness means more than no eyesight. Your eyes aren't working. It means that you're not able to see. And uh, it can mean a loss of eyesight. Um, you know, unfortunately, there are many people whose eyes don't work, but it can also mean a loss of insight so that you can have good eyesight but no insight. Like me with algebra. I can see it, but I can't see it. Okay. But you could have no eyesight and really great insight. Some of you may know of Helen Keller. She's dead now, but she, had, uh, she was blind, she was deaf, but she would travel the world giving inspirational lectures because she had amazing insight. Now, in John 9, there's an account of Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And he did it on the Sabbath day which really upset the religious leaders, the Pharisees, because they felt that that was supposed to be a day of rest. But really, elsewhere in Scripture, it gives you an insight that says that they were jealous of him. They were jealous that he could do what they couldn't do. So they told this man, who could now see, having never seen, that Jesus was a sinner. And in um, John 9, 31, 32... He responds, and this is how I think the tone of voice that he would have responded in. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. No one's ever heard of, uh, uh, no one's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man weren't from God, he could do nothing. But they looked at him and they said, how dare you lecture us? And they chucked him out of the synagogue. Well, further on, Jesus said to um, the people who were listening in um, verses 39 to 41, he says, 
for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, what, are, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. But since you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And further, in another part of scripture, Jesus actually calls the Pharisees blind guides. For instance, because the man who was um, healed was born without eyesight, but he had amazing insight. Whereas the Pharisees were born with, insight, with, with eyesight, and even though they were the spiritual leaders of the people, they couldn't see what was in front of them. They couldn't see the significance of what was in front of them. They had no insight. They were blind. Now, a lack of insight may be your state. You might think, I wish I had more insight into a situation. I wish I could see how things worked here. But you know, it doesn't have to be your faith. It might be your state, but it doesn't have to be your faith. And there's an old saying, and it's been around for a few hundred years now, there are none so blind as those who will not see. And it could be based on a, um, a scripture like this one in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, where God is commissioning Isaiah to go and be a prophet to the nation. And God says to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. And I, I think this is, a, this is a terrible condemnation to have spoken over your life. But it was spoken to them because they had refused to hear what God was saying. They had refused to see what he wanted. And so what God was saying in, in that scripture was, I'm going to give you what you want. You don't want to hear, you won't be able to hear. You don't want to see, you're destined not to see. And that was a curse. And it's a, it destined them to stay in that state. But if you are in Christ, lack of insight is not your fate. Now, I'm going to have a little sip of drink. Now, you may think that you are actually a very insightful person, and some people are much more insightful than others. And you might think, well, I'm not really blind. Just be careful not to fall into the trap that the Pharisees fell into. They didn't, they wouldn't accept that they couldn't see. But they couldn't see. And that's why Jesus said to them, you're going to stay in your guilt because you're not admitting that you can't see. But I want to explain briefly why blindness or lack of insight is actually a problem for all of us. There's not one person here in this room that blindness is not a problem for. And I'll tell you why. Now, you know that our focus affects our ability to see. I wear glasses because my focus is not what it used to be. 
Now, if I don't have my glasses, I can't see properly. So our focus affects our ability in, in seeing. If our focus is locked on our own interests, we can't see beyond that. We can't see other people. We can't see God. We become blind. A person, if you actually, if you suffer from severe short-sightedness, you would understand that. You can see things that are right up close, but you can't see everything else as a big blur. You're blind to it. And what happens, the more you focus on self-interest, the less able you are able to see the things that are of value. The things, you see, all those things that we had up there, honor and virtue and justice and fairness and equality and, and um, what was the other one, integrity, are things that have to do with concern for others, concern for God and what he esteems. And we become blind to those things. And in fact, you possibly have had a situation where you've been with a self-absorbed person, maybe in the workplace, maybe some organization you belong to, could be even in your own household. But you think that you're being seen but not seen. You say, they don't see me. They don't see who I am. They don't see what I do. I mean, they can see you, but they can't see you. Now, in previous messages, I've, I've spoken about SIN, S-I-N. That's our self-interest necessity. It's the motivation that we're born with that keeps us focused on our own needs and interests so that we lose sight of God and we lose sight of others and their interest. And some people can't accept that adorable, gorgeous, squishy, cute little babies can have a sin nature. <laughs> well, let me tell you that babies are born innocent, but they are also born entirely self-focused. And you know that as they grow, if they don't learn to see and care about others and esteem what is good, they will cease to be gorgeous and they will become ghastly. And that's because sin produces sins. Self-interest, necessity, sustainers. The things that we do in our life to enhance and protect our own benefits. So we've got this nature that is self-interested. We do things in the course of life that are expressions of that. That's sins. Um, now, the sin nature turns adorable little babies into sinful adults. And that is a universal truth. We have all got a sin problem because we are all born with a sin nature. Some people do more sins than others, but we all are sinners. That's what it says in the scriptures. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we have a sin problem, guess what other sort of problem we have as well? We have an insight problem. We have a blindness problem. All of us have a blindness problem. Now, let me say at this point that blindness only becomes a roadblock for you if it becomes a problem. You don't go looking for problems in life 
because there are far too many and you won't know which one you're supposed to be looking at. So just wait until there's a problem that you need to be able to see but you can't and then address that issue. This is not a witch hunt. But sin keeps us in the dark or the Bible says a place of darkness because sin, sin's focus blinds us to the welfare of others. It blinds us to the will and the ways of God. And even if it's not called sin in other cultures or other religions, all cultures recognize that there is a human problem that, has, that requires the discipline of the soul in order to be concerned for others. People will call it different names, they'll give different reasons for it, but they all acknowledge that it's there. Now, Jesus can forgive both our sin, that fallen nature, and our sins, the actions that we do as a product of it. But he goes further than that. Jesus gave his life for us in order to give his life to us. So, when we're born again and we receive his life, like it says in 1 John 12, you know, to as many as received him who believed in his name, he gave power to become the children of God. We receive the ability, the power, the strength to change our focus. <coughs> now, in Psalm 38, excuse me, it says, <coughs> for you, with, for with you is the fountain of life in your light we see light. And here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 5.5 5. For you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the darkness nor to the night or belong to the night nor to the darkness. So where is all this taking us? Well, it's taking us to the place of understanding how to escape from blindness. And the way that we escape from blindness, now brace yourself, are you ready for this? Our escape from blindness involves developing our capacity to see. You like that? That's deep, isn't it? I just love it when I'm deep. Yes, it is a genius. Now, some people, as I said before, can see better than others. And all people, irrespective of whether they're Christians or not, can learn to have better insight. They can develop their capacity to see. But Christians get the wow factor. And the wow factor is when God gives us his light, his life so that we can have his light, we get to see things with his focus. We get to see things from his perspective. We get to see ourselves from his perspective. We get to understand others from his point of view. And that is the wow factor. And if God were an optometrist, you would go and he'd say, it's time for an update in your script because this is, it's a developing thing. You develop insight. So you have to have your glasses changed from time to time, okay? It's not just all, whoopee, we can see everything. It's not like that. So you go to the optometrist, God, and uh, he says, well, here we are. And you set of glasses and you think, oh, wonderful, I can just see things I never saw before. And you look at them and you say, but God, the frames, the frames, you know. 
Because the frames are what we are on the outside. You know, you sort of think that you have wow factor lenses. They should be in Louis Vuitton frames, you know. But they're not. They're in the cheap plastic frames sometimes. Or they get in the, you know, the spec savers or the optical superstore. And, uh, and, and, his, and he says, are you complaining? No, no. But it was just a suggestion. Perhaps you could upgrade in the frames as well. would be nice. Just don't complain. So, um, the New Testament, here we are. We're children of the light, but we've got to learn to walk in the light. Okay. And um, that's the whole issue. We have to learn. And what learning requires, I think, what does learning require? Learning requires a teachable spirit. Yes, but there's something, there's a deeper what, what makes a teachable spirit? A teachable spirit is made through humility. The Pharisees lacked humility. They were so proud, they thought they could see everything. And Jesus said, well, because you think you're, you're stuck in your pride, so your sin remains. Humility. And this is what the scripture says in, well, it doesn't, we're not talking about humility here, but this is the, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So let's get down to some practicalities now. I want to give you a tool a visual aid of the process that you need to employ in order to come into a place where you stand more fully in the light. And it's this. It's called the Jahari window. Some of you may know of it. It's not a, a Christian device in the sense that it wasn't made up. I don't know whether the people were Christians or not. It was, it was created by two men, Joseph and Harry, so it's called the Jahari window. And it's a win it looks like a window with four panes, which are four areas of your life. But we use this tool because it is very, it's, it's a way of visualizing what you need to do in order to bring yourself to stand more fully in God's light. Okay? So, the first area is the open area, and that's the area in your life that's known to you and it's known to others. You've got blonde hair, everybody else, you know that, everybody else knows it. I might have a hidden one, you know, because it's not perhaps the colour that it really is, you know, but anyway, that's, but for the open area, things that are known by you, things that are known by others. The second area is the hidden area, and that holds things that are known by you, but not known by others. An example of this was when he was, uh, when he was 12, my brother started ballet class. And he didn't tell his high school mates because he wanted to keep it hidden because he thought he would really get it if they knew. And unfortunately, later on, they did find out and they, one of the things they did was they stuck his head down the school toilet and flushed the toilet on him. 
So he was wise in keeping it hidden. And, and, and hidden areas, can, it can be wise to keep something hidden sometimes. But that's what it is. My brother actually went on to have an international career in dance and uh, in choreography, and he's, he's had a very successful career, but it was a hard start. Now, the blind area up here uh, are things that are known to others, but not known to you. For instance, and this is a bit of a sad story too, but um, you know, it, it didn't, in a sense, it didn't have a happy ending. My, when I was little, my mum had a very well-educated friend, and this fellow wanted desperately to be in a diplomatic corps, but he never got accepted, and he couldn't understand why. Now, my mum and his other friends never felt comfortable enough, or they were too embarrassed to tell him that he had really off-putting table manners. If you want to be in the diplomatic corps, you have to be more than clever. You have to be elegant as well, you know? And, and he wasn't. And that would have disqualified him, but no one had the courage or the brave, you know, the... the, the, the they, would, they didn't want it. They just didn't tell him. And he never was in the diplomatic corps. Now, the last area, the unknown area, holds things that are not known to others and not known to you. For instance, when I was at school, uh, I, I showed no particular aptitude for writing or public speaking. Um, I, you know, the things that I do now... I didn't have a clue about then. Nobody else would have thought that I would have either. So it was an unknown area to me, but it's something that became disclosed later on. Now, I'd like to give you a more elaborate example of how um, the hidden and the blind and the unknown can come into that open area, come out into the light. But I'd like you first to watch a, a very short video. It's only about three and a half minutes. And it's on the Jahari window, and it's on the Jahari window as it relates to team building. So I thought it might be interesting for the church. Oh, sorry. Most people know that for a team to function productively, there needs to be a big element of trust. The Jahari window model will help you understand how you can go about building trust in your team. And it also helps you in your own personal development. If you're curious, the Joe Harry window model was developed by Joseph Luft and Harry Ingham. They called it Joe Harry after combining their first names, Joe and Harry. How fantabulous is that? There are four areas in the Joe Harry window, and they represent all the information available about a person. Let's use Marianne here as an example. This is Marianne's window. Area 1 is commonly known as the open area and it represents information that Marianne knows about herself and that the people around her also know about her. Like that she is a dedicated worker and that she loves cats. Area 2 is the blind area. It represents information that Marianne does not know, but that other people do. This could be information about herself that she doesn't yet realise, like that she can be a bit of a gossip, or it could be project-related information that her managers are keeping from her at work. The information in Area 3 is hidden. It's the stuff about Marianne that she knows that she doesn't want anyone else to know, like, uh... Oh, sorry. Area 4 is the unknown area, which is information unknown by Marianne, but also unknown by everyone else. 
like an aptitude she has for presentation because she's never been given the opportunity to uncover this skill. Now this is the standard representation of the window, but these panes can be moved, so the areas change size to reflect the right proportions of knowledge about a particular person. Marianne has been with this team for quite a while. See how her window compares with Dawn's, who is a recent graduate and new to the team. Newbies will have smaller open areas than established team members because they haven't had the chance to share much about themselves yet. The aim for everyone should be to develop the open area and shrink the hidden area. This space represents good communication, free from mistrust, conflict and misunderstanding. Of course, it is wise to hold some things back and not shrink the hidden area entirely. No one wants to overshare. Personal information that is not work-related should, of course, remain hidden. But anything work-related, hidden agendas, hesitations and so on, are better out in the open. The blind area is another space that is not a productive space in a team. The aim should be to reduce this space and increase self-awareness. We all know how difficult it is to work on a project when we're being kept in the dark, which is why communication is key. This is a good time to work on your feedback skills too, so you can help out a team member who might need to learn something about themselves. For tips on how to give feedback, watch our wow amazing animations, Snip and Sarah. So, now you know about the Joe Harry window, you can see the value of self-disclosure and the importance of giving and accepting constructive feedback. With this knowledge, you can absatively, positively help people build better, more trusting relationships with one another and work more effectively as a team. Yes, it's a good little video, isn't it? So, we just go back to the... I'll, I'll just... Just keep that up for a while. Now, I'll tell you a bit of, uh, of my story how it, and, and explain how it relates to the Jahari window. Now, I mentioned in a, a previous message, I think, that my dad passed away when, he, when I was 11. Now, my mum and I were in New Zealand at the time, and dad was over in Sydney, and I can remember the night she got the telegram to say that he had died and how unbelievably upset she was. You know, she just sort of lost it. But mum had been actually entertaining that night and so she had her friends over and she was sort of screaming and, and they all started gathering around her, shouting, trying to calm her down. And uh, I, I, if I have a sort of a visualisation in my mind, if I was sort of thinking it from a, a slightly more objective but humorous point of view, you know those chickens that you get in the, in the supermarket that are for dogs to chew on and things, they've got sort of long necks? There are all these sort of people all standing around, you know, all shouting and clucking their advice, and mum was, you know, a mess, and it was chaotic. And it made me feel really insecure and even more upset than I was already because I'd just lost my dad. So seeing my state, the friends all descended on me, and uh, they were about as useless as they were for my mum. <laughs> but I can remember thinking in the middle of all this chaotic state, my behaviour is not helping the situation. And I made a decision to swallow my grief and stop crying. And one of the friends actually took 
me into my room and I just sat on my bed quietly while they sorted out whatever they sorted out. But my decision to bury my grief at that point was much more powerful than I had the ability to understand because that grief had been placed in a deep down place in my life and the door had been closed. And I became blind to that place presence. I, I didn't know those feelings were there and neither did anyone else and so actually it became an unknown area for me. And the problem was having closed the deep down feeling place, I, could, uh, I didn't have a place to process deep down feelings. I'd shut the door. So I could still feel in the sense that I could laugh and I could cry. But when things had happened that were deep feelings, they went to a place in my life that I no longer remembered how to access. I didn't know how to get there. And so I lived in a chronic state of emotional repression for about another 20 years. But very fortunately for me, in the middle of those years when I was around 20, I found a relationship with Jesus. And by the grace of God, when I was about 32, would have been, God gave me insight that something was wrong in my life. You see, my deep feelings, all the deep feelings that I'd had in that time, had not gone away. They'd just accumulated. Because they were, but the, and they'd stayed in that room because they weren't being dealt with. So the deep down room was bursting and cracks were starting to appear and it was through the cracks that I sort of figured out something's not right. You know, I got to that point of awareness. Now it took a long time of self-discovery and emotional processing to work everything through, but healing came and it primarily came through the help of wise and trustworthy Christian friends and counsellors, people who were Christians who acted as counsellors for me. Now, using the Jahari window, I took what I knew of my story out of the hidden area by sharing it with them. Okay? And, I, and it didn't happen all at once. I just sort of, you know, you start out with the immediate things that you know, and, you know, that's one step at a time. But I also listened to what they saw about me, things that my um, shutdown state had kept in my blind area. I couldn't, things I couldn't see about myself. So they gave me feedback. And many times God would give them things for me to share with me. And many times God would give me insights too that I would then test by laying before them, sharing with them and asking for their feedback. So as the open area of my life increased, so did self-understanding and freedom. And the unknown area of my life was decreased. So it was a process of coming into the light through sharing the hidden things, receiving input and feedback from the, relating to the blind things, and the open place, the place where I could stand in the light. If we live in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, Scripture says in um, Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun 
shining ever brighter till the full light of day. So blindness diminishes as we walk increasingly in light, just like it says there. But we, to, to walk in the light takes three primary things. It takes time, it takes trust, and it takes integrity. And we all need the time to do it. It takes time to do it. And the, you need to have trust, and we all need to have integrity. You know, because if I'm to trust, you better have integrity. And if you're to trust, I better have integrity. So this is why we've got this sliding scale. The more trust, the more integrity there is, the more trust can be had. The less integrity there is, the less trust. So blindness reduces in the context of relationship, as it says in the scripture about, you know, that one that we read before about having fellowship with each other. And it, uh, it reduces in the context of relationship with God because his light shines in our life. And, you know, we, but we have to have people of integrity around us. And that's why I was very fortunate having people of integrity around me. And the people could be personal friends, they could be members of a home group, they could be spiritual mentors, they could, they could be professional counsellors. But the, the goal of healing blindness is not only to live in the freedom and purpose that Jesus brings to us, because that's what it produces. It produced in my life freedom and purpose. Um, but it, it also enables us to see Jesus when our eyes are open to him because self-interest blinds us to others, ourself and, you know, what we really are, to others and to God. So we want to be able to have our eyes open to see Jesus so that we can know him. And I've got a scripture here from the message version of 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says, and if you can't read it very clearly, don't worry, it's sort of part of the whole thing. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. So in thinking about looking at Jesus, I'd like us now to focus on the communion because we're going to have a time of communion. And in communion, we remember Jesus. We use the bread and the cup as a way of seeing what he's done for us. We have insight into it. We look at the bread that's been, that's been broken. We think of his body given for us. We get, we, that gives us insight into that. We look at the cup and we see that it's his blood shed for us. And so um, these things are important. But in remembering, we can also see, we were also looking for insight into Jesus himself because Jesus said, remember me. And when he says, remember me, that's his totality, his nature, his heart, his character, his actions through all his ministry and who he is. So there's something else this morning in communion that I thought 
we, that might be really important to, to have a look at and might open our eyes more fully to Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. He didn't say it at the Last Supper. He said it in the course of his ministry. But if we're blind to Jesus' presence in our life, it can be a real obstacle to us moving forward in our Christian journey. So let me tell you a story from Luke 24. After the resurrection, two of the disciples were heading off from Jerusalem on their way to a little town called Emmaus. And they were very, very glum. Because even though they had already heard that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, they obviously didn't believe it. You know, they, they were just in that state of feeling that he was gone and that was it. Well, Jesus pulls alongside them on the road. I suppose I don't know which way he was walking, but he came up beside them. But they, they didn't see him. They didn't see it was Jesus. But then Jesus started explaining to them from the scripture everything that he had to do with who he was and why he had to suffer. And they still didn't see him. But they obviously found it fascinating because they asked him to stay on. When they got to Emmaus, they said, stay with us and have supper with us and spend the night. So Luke 24, verses 30 to 35, picks up the story as to what happened next. When Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. That's like the Last Supper, isn't it? And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. I thought, that's, why? Why go then? <laughs> anyway, they got up, and they ran as, they, you know, they returned as fast as they could to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those with them. And then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And we can think, that is so strange. Here's Jesus right there with him, but they didn't see him. They had eyesight, but no insight. But we should all understand how easy it is to be blind to God's presence with us. When we are in a situation like the disciples, when we're under, when we're under a cloud of misery, when we're distracted, when we're upset, we think, we can't see God, where is God? You know, I'm going to give you a couple of stories. I have a Christian friend, and um, she knew a woman who came into very difficult circumstances. This woman's husband took his own life and left her a widow and with a pile of debt. Now, my friend and her husband, she's a Christian woman, her husband wasn't a Christian, but took, she took the, uh, this lady into her home. And for some considerable time, the lady stayed there until she got herself sorted and until she was able to fix up the debts and work out the finances, etc. But this lady wasn't really, she wasn't an easy lady to get on with. Well, at least I didn't find her easy to get on with. But one day when I was visiting, she um, said to me rather accusingly, she said, I've had a really difficult time of it and I don't know where God was in all of it. And I was so flabbergasted that I couldn't even give her an answer. Because I thought, he was right next to you in my friend. My friend who took you in. My friend who loved you through thick and thin. My friend who stood by you with everything that 
that she did for you, my friend who prayed for you, he was right there with you, but she didn't see it. She was blind. Now, in my 20s, I worked for a man, a Dutchman, who was Jewish, and one morning at morning tea, there was a group of us, and he was telling us that how when the Nazis had, in, had invaded Holland, uh, the Netherlands, that he had been arrested by the Gestapo and put in prison, awaiting deportation to the camp. So he said he, he just prayed desperately all night long that God would rescue him because he was terrified of what was going to happen. And the next morning, he was released. And he said he was so excited. You know, God had rescued him until he found out that it wasn't God at all. That, I didn't do that, did I? <laughs> Maybe God was saying, amen, I was, you know, I was upset too. Because he said a friend of his had gone to the Gestapo and paid a bribe to get him out. So it wasn't God. I thought, what did you expect to happen? The Archangel Gabriel to show up in your cell? You know, if the Gestapo were easy to bribe, would six million Jews have died? No, I don't think so. Well, God was with, in my opinion, God was with both of those people. But neither of them saw it. And because they didn't see it, they weren't able to move forward with him. Their blindness was an obstacle to them finding God. So in the story in Luke 24, Jesus used the breaking of bread as the change point. When the disciples' eyes were opened, when they saw him, he disappeared. And he left them to walk as we have to walk now, by faith. They were left just in the situation that we're in. But they'd been changed because they'd got insight into the fact that Jesus was risen, insight into the fact that he cared about them, that he was there for them. So as we remember Jesus in this time of communion, I'd like us to take the scripture from Luke as an encouragement for us, uh, and particularly if we are in a place where our difficulties or our upset or the weight of our circumstances are on us and we just can't see where God is. That to take in the taking of communion that you would pray that God would open your eyes to see him in your circumstances so that you can move forward. Because it is a holy meal and we want to have that holy meal understanding that Jesus is close to us. So let's um, pray now. And then we'll take the communion. And after communion, the service will close. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he gave us his life. Uh, he gave his life for us. And so he'll give his life to us. We pray that our eyes will be open to ourselves, that we'll walk in the light as he is in the light. We pray that our eyes will be open to him that we'll see him with us, even though our walk is by faith, that we'll have eyes to see where he is, that we know how to follow. And we ask you for this, your grace, 
And we just give you such praise and glory and honor for all you've done for us, that you have opened our eyes, that we can see and that we can follow you. Bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please come forward and take your communion and then take it back to your seat and just reflect on how what I said might apply to your circumstances. And the after communion, the worship team will very kindly be here to pray for you if you would like someone to stand with you on one of those things. Please come and have a prayer. You are.